When my granddaughter Ava was five, she loved jokes. Her father would tell her a joke and she would giggle for five minutes. But she didn't quite know how to tell a joke. We were in the car one day and her dad got out to pump gas and I decided I would teach her a joke that she could tell to her father. Ava, say to your dad, what do you call a seagull who lives by the bay? And your dad will say, I don't know, Ava, what do you call a seagull that lives by the bay? And then Ava, you will say, a bagel. <laughs> so we practiced it about five times and she had it down pat. And then her dad got back in the car and he put his key in the ignition and she said, Dad, what do you call a seagull who lives by the bay? And he said, I don't know, Ava, what do you call a seagull that lives by the bay? And she choked. She stammered. She could not remember the punchline. And then she finally said, I got it. It's a donut. <laughs> and even though she got it all wrong, we all laughed. In today's scripture lesson, Jesus gives the disciples the very words they will need to answer the questions he thinks they are about to be asked. He sends two of his disciples on an errand to get a donkey so that he can ride into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Jesus instructs them, If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say, The Lord needs it, and we'll bring it back when he's done. Sure enough, they go, they find the donkey, and there in the street, a bystander asks, What are you doing? And they say, The Lord needs it, but don't worry, we'll bring it back in a minute. As Christians, we are like those two disciples on the errand. We, too, are asked questions, and we, too, have to give an answer. I shouldn't tell you this, but when I was 21, 22, 23, I would go out to bars and parties with my good girlfriends from college. We were all single, and we were eager to meet young men our ages. I had just graduated as a journalism major in college, and they had graduated and were beginning their careers in business, one of them going off to law school, while I had recently announced my intention to become a minister and go to seminary. My friends would sometimes say to me on the way to the bar, now Carla, if anyone asks. I mean, could you just say that you're like in school? <laughs> maybe, maybe I could say I'm in counseling. Oh yeah, 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 that's good, they said, because they all knew that if I said I was going to seminary to be a minister, well, not only would I seem like a dud, but they would all seem suddenly uncool too, guilt by association, and they didn't want to ruin their chances with the young men at the party. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we know, because we've been looking at it these many weeks of Lent, that Jesus gets peppered with questions. Both his followers and his opponents ask him question after question after question about what it means to follow God. There are so many questions in the Gospel of Mark that one scholar calls questions the central nervous system of Mark's story. Now Jesus turns it, and he tells them that they are the ones who are about to be asked the questions. Our 10 members of the pastor's class 
just joined the church, confessed their faith, walked into those warm waters of baptism and were immersed with your love. And what they did is to say, we are ready to answer for Jesus. We are ready to join you all as a congregation in answering the questions for Jesus. We are all called Christian now, all of us, and Christian means little Christ. Now what we do and what we say becomes a reflection of Jesus, for he has passed the baton onto us that all of us might speak his truth and live his love in the mundane, ordinary stuff of our lives. My son called home from college this week. Do you have a minute, Mom? Well, you know kids don't call home from college. So what do you say? No matter how busy you are, you say, I've got all the time in the world. What's up? And he said, well, I was just giving a guitar lesson. And the student that I was teaching was a very distinguished man, quite a bit older than myself. But he couldn't quite get the chords as I was teaching them. And so when he would get frustrated with himself, he would say, oh, I'm so retarded. Mom, he said, I didn't know if I should tell him that it's wrong to use the word retarded that way. It's such an insult to people who have a variety of mental abilities, including autism. Mom, some of the people I love most dearly have autism. Should I have spoken up? Or would that have been rude? Sometimes we are not quite sure when is the right time or place to speak our truth. My aunt moved into a retirement community when she was in her mid-80s. One of her friends that she made at the retirement community said one day at the dinner table that she thought that gay and lesbian people were those whom God disapproved of. My aunt spoke up. I think you were wrong, said Aunt Millie. God created people gay or lesbian and loves them the same as God loves you or me. And you know what I think really makes God mad, said Aunt Millie? It's when you treat people unfairly because of their sexual orientation. Her new friend said, well, you're probably right. My classmate from seminary, Norman Wurzbaugh, has recently written a book called The Way of Love. He tells a story about a community garden called the Lord's Acre. At the Lord's Acre, volunteers gather to raise fresh produce to supply the local food banks. Susan runs the community garden, and one day when she shows up at the Lord's Acre, she notices that the new patch that they planted that year full of melons had no melons. They begin noticing that other produce was missing, and one day when Susan got to the Lord's Acre, she saw a shopping bag hanging there in the middle of the garden on a nail, and she knew it belonged to Emma, a woman in the community who struggled with poverty and illness and isolation. Susan confronted Emma, and Emma flew into an angry rage she said, I need that food to live, and I give some of that food to my landlord who's always angry with me for paying the rent late. Instead of escalating the conflict, 
Susan sat back and quietly listened to Emma's verbal abuse for an hour. Emma stomped off saying, you will never see my face at this garden again. But a month later, Emma called Susan and apologized for stealing. She wondered if she might become a part of the gardening project, if someone might come over to her home and teach her how to plant melons herself. Today, Emma is a regular volunteer at the Lord's Acre. She goes through the seed catalogs, she tills the ground, she waters the garden. Because you see, Emma was not just hungry for food. Emma was hungry for a place where she could give her love away and receive love back. Susan realized that though the garden does so much good in terms of actual produce, that what the garden truly does is to make God's love visible. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You know, Jesus seems more focused on the whole donkey procurement part of the story than he does on that holy parade about to happen in the city. Mark spends so much of his Palm Sunday story telling us how Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him to get all the details arranged. Mark never wastes words, and yet this part about getting the donkey, it seems to go in slow-mo as they go not just for a donkey, but an unridden donkey. An unridden donkey is one that is fit for a sacred ceremony. And we are told the nuanced details of the geography, that they are there about two miles outside of town between the villages of Bethphage and Bethany, right there by the Mount of Olives. And when Mark says the Mount of Olives, it's like that part of the movie when the music swells in this ominous fashion and you know something dramatic is just about to unfold. For the prophets have said for ages that on this place in the Mount of Olives, the Lord will speak. And you and I know now what Mark knows when he wrote this story that though these disciples are so eager and ready and willing to run and procure the donkey with gladness for their Lord Jesus, answering with their words and their actions, that momentarily they will be the same ones to run and hide and deny and betray. My friend Sally, who worked here at the church for a number of years in our communications department, taught kindergarten Sunday school at the Congregational Church when her kids were growing up. She taught Sunday school in the basement while upstairs the adults would gather for worship. It was Palm Sunday and Sally and the five and six-year-olds were discussing the nuances of Jesus arriving on the donkey on Palm Sunday at a festive parade. And then Sally asked the kids, and do you know what happens next in the coming week after this? And some of the kids thought something about Easter eggs was going to happen, and some mentioned Jesus, but she could tell that they weren't quite getting it. So she said, kids, there are some dark days ahead. Jesus is about to be arrested, put in jail, and crucified. They looked puzzled. Basically, kids, that means Jesus was killed. 
One little boy named David looked stunned. He yelled, they killed Jesus? Do they know this upstairs? <laughs> Jesus. David raises a great question about Jesus. I wonder if those disciples, the two who went to get the donkey, knew was what was about to happen. As disciples of Christ, you and I are ready. We are ready to run and answer with our lives for Jesus. But now the cross looms. When our knees buckle and our heart pounds, are we ready then to speak and act on behalf of him who went to the cross? How will we answer once danger enters the equation? Leopold Lopez was born into a well-educated and wealthy family in Caracas, Venezuela, but today he is forbidden to speak or leave his home. I read Leopold Lopez's story recently because our congregation formed a missionary partnership with Venezuela in the early 1990s, and many of us traveled back and forth there on numerous occasions. You know that Venezuela sits on the largest proven oil reserves in the world, but its people remain trapped in poverty. It became a democracy in 1958, and yet still, the people there have no voice. Lopez graduated from Kenyon College in Ohio, and then he entered Harvard Divinity School, but quickly shifted his degree program to the Masters in Government Affairs. Upon graduation from Harvard, he returned to Venezuela. He was elected mayor of a major city and began building schools and health clinics and reducing the crime rate. He was named one of the top three mayors in the entire world. He became very popular and used his platform to speak out against the fraud and the corruption of the national government. His bodyguard was assassinated when the attempt was made on his life. He led a protest march in the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King, attempting to advocate for peaceful change for those suffering from starvation and lack of clean water or basic food. This protest march landed him in jail where he read Ralph Waldo Emerson until they took all of his books and then he read only the Bible from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again until they took the Bible as well, torturing him, placing him in solitary confinement. Today, Leopold Lopez remains on house arrest. He is forbidden to speak to the press but he has been speaking still. With a reporter named Will Hilton, who recently published Lopez's story, major world leaders, including both Obama and Trump, have called for Lopez, the most famous political prisoner in Latin America, to be set free. How does Lopez muster the courage to speak out after all that he has been through. Even the reporter trembled in fear, worried that publishing the story would bring further suffering to Lopez and his family. But Lopez encouraged the reporter to publish the story. He says, I know that each day I live, 
could be the last day I will see my children. But I believe a commitment to the cause means that I must take a risk. Do we believe in our cause enough to take a risk? Martin Niemöller lived in Nazi Germany. He was a Lutheran pastor when Hitler rose to power. Initially, Martin Niemöller supported the Nazis, but then he shifted and he joined the resistance movement. He famously wrote, first they came for the socialist and then I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionist and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. If anyone asks, what will you and I say? Did you read about that 15-year-old boy, the avid soccer player from Parkland, Florida, named Anthony Borges? As the gunman approached Anthony's classroom, he ran and slammed the door shut and stood in front of it until he could get it locked. He could have run instead, but he secured the door, sparing the lives of 20 classmates while he took five bullets to his legs and back. He survived, though he faces a horrific period of recovery and many surgeries. Anthony immigrated to the United States from Venezuela three years ago. From his hospital bed, he told the sheriff that everyone kept asking him why he did what he did. Why is that so hard to figure out? He said, I never really thought of doing anything else. Someone is bound to ask, will our words and our lives bear witness to the one who loved all the way to the cross.